Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. A lot of the tension of their friendship, I think, early on, and maybe even throughout, comes from the various moments in their lives when they both sort of want or need more from one another than the other is capable of giving. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Read it. Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, age-old friendship. In a lot of media, depictions of women in female friendships fall back on stage stereotypes. The backstabbing competitor, the gossip, the manipulator, and the superficial princess. Okay, cool. Well, our guest today... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any excuse? Her latest book avoids those pitfalls by exploring with depth the realities of adult life. Time for an introduction. I'm Lynn Steger Strong, author of the novel Want. Lynn Steger Strong. In Want, Lynn depicts the realistic fissures that can grow in a long-held friendship, seep into a marriage, and corrupt our sense of privilege, success, and money. It's a book about a woman who declares bankruptcy and gets in touch with an old friend, um, which I guess are the two sort of, to me, kind of inciting incidents of the book. But more importantly, it's a book about trying to be a successful woman and how that affects privilege, friendship, motherhood, class, money, and shame. At the heart of the novel is the friendship of Elizabeth and Sasha, Although, small spoiler alert, Elizabeth isn't named until the very end of the book. To me, a lot of the project of the book was to sort of take tropes that I love and and am really interested in and kind of upend them or reconsider them in different ways. And so I think in a lot of ways, the Sasha-Elizabeth friendship is a friendship we see a lot of in fiction, not least because you see a lot of it in life, which is to say that you have two girls both of whom need, want love and need love in different ways, and both of whom I think almost use one another as receptacles or kind of empty spaces to fill in with all the things that they maybe aren't getting or wish that they got somewhere else. And I think Elizabeth, for instance, you know, she feels she needs more, you know, the the sort of gaping hole of need that exists within her at the age of 14 and 15 and 16 is just bigger than Sasha's is because Sasha is much more sort of satiated and, and, you know, sustained, I think, by the love that she's gotten by her family. Whereas Elizabeth maybe has always felt this lack of love um, in her home life. And so inevitably she's compelled by this woman, girl, she's excited by this girl. um, And it's maybe her first foray into intense relationship outside of her family relationship. And so I think that she wants an almost impossible amount um, from this other girl who is just a girl. From Want, page 53. Men sought her out always. I was an obstacle they had to overcome. They pretended to care about what I was reading so she would see that they were kind and thoughtful. 
They would half listen to the things I said as they turned their chairs closer to her. We were the same age, from the same place, equally unrelenting, depressive, bookish. But the shape of her face, the way clothes hung on her body, her perfect skin, the largeness of her eyes, we were completely separate things. Sasha is beautiful, apparently, according to Elizabeth, (laughs) and she gets looked at a lot while Elizabeth just sort of crams her face and her body with junk food. Mm -hmm. And it made me think about how in almost every single female friendship that I know of or have had, there's usually one friend who gets looked at more than the other. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of the book is asking about who is visible and who isn't Mm -hmm. and why. And um, I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I love that read a lot. And I think, you know, again, insofar as like I wanted to play with ideas that I feel like already exist in the world, the idea of the visible one as the one who sort of has more power or wins, I feel like is the more constant narrative. And that's true here to some extent, right? But I also feel like I wanted to play with the idea that visibility isn't always a positive. And it certainly isn't a positive when when people look, they project upon you their own ideas of you instead of letting you sort of be yourself. So I think whereas early on, especially Sasha's visibility and what Elizabeth perceives as her beauty um, feels absolutely to Elizabeth like a power that she doesn't have access to. I think as she gets a little bit older, she also realizes that invisibility comes with its own type of power, if only because you can sort of secretly and quietly and do more of what you want. Um, and it's a kind of freedom. Um, so yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, yeah. And at one point, um, right before their, their relationship takes a nosedive, when they're both still young, Elizabeth says, <clears throat> excuse me, Elizabeth says, quote, I like being needed, giving, but not so close that I can't run away. And I wondered if you could like, I, I know what it means, and a lot of people know what that means, but I was hoping that you could just unpack a little more about what what Elizabeth meant by that. Well, you know, I think I think we pick, especially really young friendships, right? Like we we pick people on purpose, whether we realize it or not. And even going back to that first thing you said about Sasha, like when Elizabeth and Sasha meet, she feels so incredibly powerful to Elizabeth that I think the idea that Sasha would ever need more from Elizabeth than Elizabeth would need from Sasha is sort of absurd. And I think honestly, that's part of the reason she picks her. Like she wants to pick one with that, someone with that type of power because she's not sure she knows how to take care of people. She's not sure she knows how to give to people because her models maybe haven't really shown her. And so the idea of sort of being loved and and needed is one thing. The idea of being a necessity to another human being, I think, for someone like Elizabeth is terrifying because she's not completely sure that she's capable of giving. She wants to give, right? And, and if it's a matter of like making someone smile or making someone feel pleasure in a single moment, she feels up for it. But if the stakes were to be raised, I think that terrifies her because she's not sure she's ever been shown quite how to do it without maybe accidentally hurting someone um, or just doing it wrong. 
From Want, page four. She takes off her shirt and pants, and I try not to stare. Happy birthday, I say, thinking, why did we invite those people we don't like when we could have spent the whole night just like this? She laughs and nods down at my clothes. You going in, she says. It's January, but it's Florida, so it's warm. And I take off my shirt and pants. We're both strong and swim out far. And though the water shocks at first, it feels better, safer. I feel surer than I ever feel on land. There's a very thin line, and I'm sure this has come up before, between platonic and sexual, and where it's sort of both platonic and sexual and not sexual and not platonic at all. Like, it's a, it's very particular to female friendships. Yeah. Um, and that was my read, at least, was that there was... Um, there was a lot of, you know, watching and taking in of Sasha from Elizabeth and a lot of, like, uh, platonic lust in a way. Um, So I was wondering if you had, you might have wanted to just leave it to the reader, but was there anything that you felt was, um, was overtly sexual in Elizabeth and she just shut it off? Yeah. I mean, and I love, I love, and you know, what's fun about this is that, so, so part of it to me, at least as, as I see Elizabeth and Sasha, especially Elizabeth and especially sort of it's, it's the late nineties when they're friends, which is not so long ago, but long enough ago that one's relationship to one's sexuality was different, not least through the limits of language. Right. So to me, the, the fun thing, whenever I have this conversation with people is always the great thing that you just did, which is you said platonic lust, which I haven't heard before. And I, love right but there's like not quite language for what they are and yet it's so at least to me like deeply and viscerally recognizable is that which is to say it's like it's not quite sex but it's not not sex right um and it's and it's a little bit wanting to be closer to Sasha's body and it's a little bit wanting to inhabit Sasha's body and the idea that sex doesn't hold all of that within it too, right? The idea that if someone wants to have sex with a man, it isn't also a little bit because she wants to co-opt his power or he wants to co-opt his power. You know, the idea of any of those lines are clear to me just feels sort of absurd and more because of the limits of language than the limits of human desire or interest um, or lust. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely intentional, you know, that there's a moment early where she's looking at her body, um, as they take their clothes off before they get in the ocean. Um, and I hope that there's, I hope there's not really another way to read that, you know, like, I think there, there are explicit moments where it's like, yes, this is about an idea of a person and this is about caretaking and this is about friendship, but all of that is also wrapped up in the way that we are compelled towards certain bodies um, and and invested in certain bodies over others. It is endlessly frustrating to me that there isn't a word because it deserves one. Yeah, yeah, I I I agree, and it's yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I've been writing about this and thinking about this a lot, but just sort of like the the way that language can be violent in terms of like we name a thing and then it can't be all the other things that maybe it wants to be. Right? If we say you're a mom, like what other things do you not have access to anymore? And if we say 
you're heterosexual, what other things do you not have access to anymore? But then the opposite of that, and the thing that maybe I'm really interested in is this sort of Maggie Nelson idea of language being elastic instead. So saying, okay, so you're a woman, but like, how can we stretch that word and fit more ideas inside of it than we thought possible? You, you know, what, whatever, sex, like we think of sex as one thing, but can we stretch that word and fit more actions inside of it than we thought possible? Um, and how through storytelling can we kind of force the elasticity of language more? Um, because you're right, we should, we should have new words, but we should also maybe continually try to upend what we think the words that we already have are capable of. You just so perfectly put into words this, this thing that I'm constantly coming up against and doesn't have anything to do with your book, and I'm just going to mention it very briefly, Yeah, is that I'm endlessly frustrated that the word girl or woman can't mean everything that everyone feels, yeah. whether all women share that feeling or not, you know, yeah. the masculinity of it, the non-binary of it. Like, I don't understand why woman can't encapsulate or girl can't encapsulate boy and man and, you know, and use right. the words that we have and make them mean what we want them to mean, make them more elastic. Right. Well, and and and, and also, like, words are sort of these incredible palimpsests, right? Like they just, they carry with them all of these meanings that they've had over centuries. And then they also carry, I always do this exercise with students where I'm like, okay, everybody think the word good. Now look around the room and imagine who in the room is thinking the same thing as you. No one, right? Like everybody imagine the word mom. Is anyone in the room thinking the same word as you, right? Like, so it's just, it's just this sort of, and, and the same thing with woman, the same thing with girl. Even as soon as you say girl, I have this sort of nervous reaction because I both constantly as a woman who's far past girlhood think of myself as a girl and also know that that's like pejorative or derogatory in certain ways you know but also to your point I want to reject that because girls are powerful you know like there's so much of girlhood that I wish that I still had that the idea of calling myself a girl in certain contexts feels quite exciting and thrilling to me um but I know other people will carry other things into that word and and get it wrong time for a short break when we come back Elizabeth deals with being broke and we go for a long run Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Lynn Steger-Strong, author of Want. Elizabeth exists in a very specific and familiar place in society. She's white, she comes from money, she's married, she has children, she's well-educated, and she works, but she's poor. Mm -hmm. She occupies a space in America where financial insecurity and privilege coexist. Can you talk about how she got there? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to this idea of the education and the privilege is part of the problem, which is not which I would call her broke instead of poor, if only because like, I think poverty is generational and systemic and has implications that is that Elizabeth never really 
has to engage with, right? And that's also kind of an important part of the project and, and is related partially to her safety. But again, I think that's part of how she got into the situation. She thinks for reasons that are both delusional maybe, but also just because this is what the world has told her, that if she checks certain boxes, which she has, um, she will have access to a certain way of life that actually she doesn't have access to. And so it always, I think, comes back to the tension between what she thinks she's allowed to want and what she actually can get. And, and again, I think in the book, it was really important to me to when we, when I thought about how she got there and when I thought about how to show the reader how she got there, I didn't want at any point for the reader to think that she was explicitly a victim of the systems. Like, yeah, the systems are implicated, but she's also culpable, right? Like she continues to grasp, like we said before, at this life that she shouldn't, she, she can't have. Like, she, not that she, I don't know about should, should is not really relevant to me, but like she does not have enough money to have the life she continues to try to live. She wants to live in a good school district. She can't afford a good school district. She wants to go out to dinner and have multiple gin martinis in Manhattan. She cannot afford multiple gin martinis in Manhattan. She cannot buy $26.99 books. Really, I mean, if you think about it, she shouldn't have had children. Like she can't afford children. And if she was being wholly practical, she wouldn't have had children. But then I think that's the space where the system, right? Like as soon as I say that out loud, I'm like, yeah, but come on, like, <laughs> shouldn't we be allowed to make these types of choices? Um, but I think for a lot of people, you can't. Um, I think a lot of people never thought that they could. And so that sets them up in different ways, you know, not to get too like personal, but I'm staying with my mother-in-law right now, who is an immigrant and who, who knows who is simply better at being poor than I am, which is to say, when we go to the grocery store, she knows how much everything costs. She's known her entire life, how much everything costs. She can sort of, she can think through, she knows which gas station is cheaper. She knows all of these things and these things are embedded in her body because she was brought up in a, in a place, in a way that that scarcity was was common right and she doesn't live in that place anymore but even just because that was that was sort of that was her fundamental foundational experience right whereas someone like elizabeth her fundamental foundational experience is the opposite it's getting the you know 6.99 a pound cherries at the grocery store and not thinking about it it's going to restaurants and so unlearning that level of privilege just to survive is part of her struggle versus sort of if you grew up poor instead of became broke, I think you learn a level of vigilance that, you know, I don't know for everyone, but at least in my experience, is harder to learn later in life. Right. It's almost like she was brought up in a, in a world of non-reality in a way, you know. Yeah, and yeah she was- completely. Yeah, no one ever, you know, and again... This is, this is, I, I don't ever, the entire project of this book was to take Elizabeth to the mat at every step, right? Like, I don't, I don't think that she is a victim of her privilege, you know? Um, but I think one of the tensions of the book is that like her relationship to the financial reality she's grappling with is brand new and she's floundering because she, she really doesn't know how to deal with 
the financial realities because she's never seen them before. She, she wasn't brought up with them. Um, she really even wasn't exposed to them. So it's just, she's fumbling. From Want, page 51. We declared bankruptcy today, I text Sasha. I text this to my parents also, who have a lot of money. They have a lot of money, but a few months ago, when I told my dad the state that we were in and that we needed help, though I hadn't asked for help before, and for a long time I said fuck them and their fucking money and was angry and was mean, he told me that giving me money would be like throwing it away. I think one of the tensions of the book and one of the tensions for Elizabeth is the difference between knowledge and intimacy um, and how books fall short, which is to say that I think that she feels in maybe a little bit of a self-righteous way, like she knows better than the other white teachers. Um, but what she comes up against with her black coworkers is that that doesn't mean she could ever begin to understand their experience, you know? And so she's put in this place where, she, she's not really able to feel close to anyone. And so she can pretend with her Black co-workers insofar as she can try to portray an experience closer to theirs, which I think, I hope she knows still won't work, right? Like it's not like suddenly they're going to feel a level of intimacy because I, I don't actually believe she can ever understand their experience. Um, which is to say she knows enough, I think, to be ashamed of her privilege and ashamed of her whiteness But that knowledge in sort of, again, like on the ground when she deploys that knowledge, it doesn't add up to much, right? Like it's, it it doesn't mean that she can suddenly, that these women should trust her. Um, It doesn't mean that they can feel the level of intimacy that they might be able to feel with one another. Like there's knowledge I think is is useful and valuable, um, but it, but it doesn't solve everything. Right. In the back of my head the whole time, I kept on thinking, how did she ever get married? (laughs) (laughs) you know like yeah I mean I think I think as I portray it I think the sex was good um and and I think yeah to me to me the marriage is interesting if only because I think in a lot of ways especially like not naming the husband like it's the physicality of it like it's just like and what a relief that is to a person who's always in their head um like I imagine, and that's sort of, it's, it's in the book that, that when they meet, there's, there's quite a bit of, of sex. Um, and, and which is, which is interesting because we were talking about sex earlier. And to me, again, like sex is, is endlessly interesting as a form of human communication that lives outside of language. Um, and I think the idea that someone spent their, who spent a good amount of their life trying to make words more powerful than they are to suddenly be able to communicate with someone else in another way and to be able to inhabit their body. Probably, I mean, Elizabeth is not great at inhabiting her body. Um, So I think in my head, she's maybe inhabiting her body with him through their courtship in like the first, for the first time. Um, And the level of, of thrilling that is, I think to me is, is, is maybe enough to, to sign up for a lifetime with someone um, but yeah, I mean, I think to me, he, he is a little purposefully blank because she is, she is pretty closed off. Um, but she did somehow luck into, I think a pretty solid marriage. Yeah, she seriously did. Um, you mentioned something I do want to talk about, which is bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you 
clearly are interested in bodies. And um, she, Elizabeth, is uh, such a hardcore runner. I was out of breath like half the time and ashamed with my sedentary life. But she (laughs) would wake up at like 4.20 and go for a 15-mile run. Yeah. What up? Yeah. I mean, so um, there was, I did another interview and someone asked me if I thought that Elizabeth was capable of of tenderness. And I said that the closest probably she could get to tenderness is those runs, which I hope sort of explains a lot about Elizabeth's relationship to tenderness, right? Which is to say that I think that she has a hard time making space and making time to just breathe. Um, And so those runs are this space where, okay, no one needs from her, no one wants from her, no one's asking anything of her, but maybe the only way that she's able to give herself the privilege of that freedom is to also beat the shit out of herself at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So you should maybe feel good about your sedentary life. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, No, it was just, I was blown away by the... And I know it's a character, but for some reason, I was just like, this feels too real. Yeah. I mean, I will admit I run a lot. <laughs> Lynn Steger Strong, author of Want. It's published by Henry Holt and Company, and you should run out and get it now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall and, yeah... I want to be taller. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo is Loudtree's editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com, and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. And you could read transcripts of all of our episodes at the Writing Cooperative. They're at writingcooperative.com. So it turns out that for Lynn, being an avid runner was just the thing to help teach her daughters about feminism. I have this double running stroller and we would go running like with my husband, but he's quite slow. And so we would play this game of like, we would just circle him. And so they they just think that like men are inherently weaker than women, like physically, like because their entire like babyhood is just like literally running circles around their father. For, for like three miles. This is bookable.